The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good to see everybody tonight. Thanks for showing up. You know, the, you may not want to feel responsible, but the Buddhist Studies program, this community, right, we created together. So nobody shows up. No community, no study, no deepening. And I don't think anybody here would argue that it's perfect, but it's what we got. This opportunity to gather like this, to learn a little bit more these teachings from the Buddha, see if they might be useful for us, how they might be useful, what they said in motion, so we can become more independent. Oh. Like just independent in understanding our, the nature of our own mind, and in particular, you know, from the point of view, the Buddhist perspective, in particular, what are the causes for stress, and what are the causes for release? It's really good because there are elements of spiritual life that are really challenging, and if we don't have this context that. I'm doing this to take care of myself in a very direct, immediate way. Not something like, well, maybe if I'm lucky later or down the road, there might be some benefit to the work I'm doing. And it's actually, whether we like it or not, it's our responsibility to sense how what I'm doing, the training I'm taking, taking on, how it's useful. Like, what makes this a skillful means? What makes this practice, like, especially this part, as I think Ajahn Sumedho said, you know, and he's not alone, it's probably, you know, somewhat true that there's nothing more infuriating than these initial instructions for mindfulness of breathing. I don't know if anybody attended the Sunday uh, weekly practice groups yesterday. You know, we have one at, in the morning at 10.30 and then one in the evening here at the center at 7. The Sunday morning one's also online. But uh, I t- did something I normally don't do and I probably should do it more often, both, both personally but also uh, just to offer it out as an instruction. I invited people to count their breaths because it's so edifying, you know, and you could just weave this into your practice for a period of time, each set, or some of your sets this next week. Once you get composed and you're settled, you establish mindfulness to the core, and you're working with the first few instructions, then as you're breathing in, feeling the sensations of that inhalation, you can just quietly, in your mind, Note one. And then as you're breathing out, I mean, there are many ways to do the counting. This is just one way. As you're breathing out, then you would count one again. So one with the in-breath, one with the out-breath. Two with the in-breath, two with the out-breath. See, you get the rhythm right here, right? Three with the in-breath, three with the out-breath. Let's see how far you go. You know, and then if you get to 10, without any wavering, like if you're, you wonder, where did I leave off? 
That means you've lost it and you begin again with one, with the next in-breath. Happily beginning with one, right? And happily noticing any shame or whatever frustration that might arise. It's like, it's not about, it's about learning about the nature of the mind and uh, the nature of distractedness, that pattern of the mind flitting about, because that's what the mind has been allowed to do. It's become the habit of our minds to flit over here and to flit over there. And so to, uh, like it really, the counting just sort of makes the mind accountable to the commitment it's made to follow the Buddha's instruction, you know, to check it out. We're not saying we're going to follow it forever. We're just saying, you know, for this 30-minute sit or however long you sit at home, you know, you know, because I'm taking this course, I'm just going to train my mind in this way. Even if I have to start over 75 times in that 30 minutes, and just and get really interested in not just in the connecting and the sustaining, but in those first moments of the wavering, because distractedness doesn't just happen, right? It's a whole natural process. How the mind, in a sense, gets seduced to follow some impulse to bring this to mind, or to think about this, or to problem-solve that, or to get lost in doubt about the practice, for example. Well, there's any number of ways the mind can go. So I, I'd encourage you to explore that counting. And, uh, and then when you get some momentum and you feel like you can have some continuity of present moment awareness, then really this is sort of the second instruction is really understanding how that natural process of breathing in and out will reflect the way the mind is. So as the mind is more settled, the breath generally follows. The particular quality of breathing in and out will follow how settled the heart is. Right? When our mind is really agitated, our body's agitated. When the mind is really settled, the body, surprisingly, feels really good even if we have injuries. That's why, you know, people who have a lot of difficult physical uh, stuff going on, you know, medical crisis or whatever it might be, you know, the nice thing to do is develop some samadhi. Because as the mind gets really settled, it doesn't have a problem with bodily sensations. It doesn't mean... I mean, to some degree, when the mind gets settled, the subtleness of the mind will reveal how the body's holding tension in ways that isn't serving anybody's well-being, right? So a lot of the unnecessary layers of physical tension can be dropped. But there still, of course, can be, you know, physical pain, even when we're not resisting it. But that can, that gets transformed. And that's that fourth step of realizing, recognizing calm, bodily calm, bodily well-being, 
Because what we're noticing is the mind that knows not having a problem being intimate with bodily sensations. So the calm is really the mind not having a problem with sensation. You know, because the body is just the body. So like pain in the body, what is the problem with pain in the body? The problem is the mind that doesn't like the pain in the body. See, we have a lot of uh, simplistic and naive and wrong understanding about physical discomfort. I mean, most of us do. Because we haven't, you know, we're just so arrogantly sure that pain is bad in and of itself. But what mostly what makes pain bad is we don't know, the mind doesn't know, the heart doesn't know how to be with it, how to understand it, how to be close to it. Because we're arrogantly sure that the mind should resist it or freeze up around it or uh, repress it so I don't know that it's there. Go somewhere, you know, concoct something to think about, turn on a good movie so I don't have to be with it. So in our small groups tonight, um, you know, just some things that might seem appropriate to share. Of course, you might have your own um, insights or challenging, beautiful, horrific experiences that happened this last week that you want to share with the group or whatever it might be. But it's, uh, these small groups are powerfully supportive in our practice because when you sit down with three or four other people and you really receive what other people have to say, you know, those people who don't pass but really are willing to generously say something about what they're learning, what their experience is, it really normalizes what it is to have a mind. So, especially around this training where we're being asked to, you know, again, this isn't the whole training. This is just the beginning part of the training. In the beginning, we're using specifically the sensations of the breath as an exclusive meditation object. So much of the rest of the 16 steps are really being aware of the mind, different aspects of the mind. But initially, you know, the first few steps were really retraining the mind to just be attentive to this experience of breathing in and breathing out. So how was how's that been? Because we're learning about the experience of non-distraction. Like when I keep this in mind, then I can really track my habit of distraction. It just stands out. Because whenever I'm not intimate in an, in an unwavering way, with that natural process of breathing in or out, well, then I'm distracted by definition, right? And then that's interesting. Like, what is that force and what is the not a natural counterweight to the force of distraction? And what I suggested in the, in the instructions these last two weeks is the natural counterweight to the force of habit to be distracted to the mind going wherever it goes, is to be in, to 
to realize we can actually be interested in the meditation object, the physicality of breathing in. And some of you will feel the breath in a more general way, but some of you will find it useful to give yourself a very specific place, like to feel the touching at the nostril. So experiment with whether you feel the breath just more generally in the body, or whether having a more specific anchor is more suitable. And it may change. So like in the beginning, it might be very useful to have a specific one or more touch points that you can really connect with. And you know you're connecting with it when you're connecting with it. Like you you know that feeling as this part of the solar plexus begins to rise with the in-breath. So you feel that movement, you know. And then maybe there's a, toward the end of the in-breath, there's another sensation that you can connect with. And toward the, at the beginning of the out-breath, there's a particular way you feel it. And then a little later. But later, you might, uh, experience of the breath may be just a kind of more subtle, energetic feeling that doesn't really even have a beginning and end. Remember the, uh, I remember, I don't know, sixth grade, I was so impressed. One of my classmates at the science fair did something, uh, is it a Mobis strip? Is that what it's, how you pronounce Mobius strip, you know, she did this thing. I just thought it was so mind-blowing as a sixth grader. But there's that kind of flow when the mind gets, the body, breath, mind gets more subtle. There's a kind of energetic, the in and out. It isn't such a uh, sort of grossly embodied thing that we normally might think of our breath as being. And the important thing, the important point is, we let the breath be the breath, whether it's gross or subtle, whether it feels like, you know, twisted steel trying to move, or it feels like this just subtle current that's almost nothing coming in, going out in a way that you can't even tell the difference. It becomes so refined, so subtle. So indistinct even in sense of the body as things settle. And that's that's that whole piece is like getting that transition from gross gross to refined, from distraction to non-distraction, from and, and really getting the flavor in our in becoming independent, like I really know this mind knows the flavor of samadhi. Because it has a very distinct flavor. And it's, and it's important to do it, for most of us at least, with a specific anchor. Because once we start to open up with the third instruction to the totality of the body, we really want to keep that flavor of seclusion, that flavor of samadhi, even as we allow for this natural inclusivity. Because it's subtly stressful, as you probably have noticed, to train with a specific anchor, just being with the sensations of breathing in and breathing out, and the samadhi that comes along with some momentum, some continuity, right? To just uh, keep leaving everything, the, the, the other sensations of the body, to keep leaving that in the background, and keep attending to that current of breathing in and breathing out, 
So when we when we're ready for that third instruction, where he the Buddha adds, one trains oneself, right? Because now we're training one, training the mind. Okay, instead of just not forgetting the breath, let's specifically include the totality of the body as we're breathing in. And so here, you know, the mind is gonna it will have different habits. It will feel like either avoiding some places or obsessing about some places in the body because they're predominant, they hurt, or whatever. And how to have that, um, like, hey, you all belong, it all belongs. Everything belongs. It's the way it is. It belongs because it's the way that the body is right now, as I breathe in. And then as we breathe out, hey, this is the way it is right now. You all belong. It all belongs. Nothing left out. So it has a kind of a metta vibe. And, and that loving kindness flavor there is really important because as we go from more of an exclusive object to a more inclusive, there's likely to be a lot more energy, right? Because part of having a more, you know, exclusive attention to, you know, certain touch points that are related to the breath or something very specific, the mind feels a kind of safety precisely because it's not feeling like it has to be attentive to the more totality of our bodily experience. So as we experiment, you know, with the third instruction, opening it up, you are going to be opening to a lot, you know, the whole world of the body. And so we want to have enough of a clear sense because we don't have to lose the samadhi, which is the non-distractedness, just because we're opening up. But it will be a, a new skill. Just like you know, you might be in a really quiet place. You might be up in the boundary waters canoeing by yourself for two weeks. And you might, you know, after some time, you know, the, you know, unhooking from our, all of our addictions in the first few days. And then your mind might get accustomed to the simplicity, the lack of electronic devices, the lack of social interactions, the lack of civilized structures and you know, all of that. And then whatever that ease and peace, then it'd be, it would be very appropriate for a practitioner to be very curious, like, whatever well-being I have, having been in the wilderness for two weeks, how might that be sustained as I get in my car, turn the radio on, start hitting bigger and bigger towns, you know, different fast food places, start triggering different desires and, you know, thinking about starting up at work again and reconnecting with relationships and then actually getting home and all of those triggers that are there at home and connecting with people. What's actually in the way, like, whatever quality of the mind that we realized when we had that more secluded life is that way of being that we realized completely dependent 
on being in the wilderness, or could it be sustained? And that's a little bit what happens with this transition between the second instruction, where we're tracking the gross physicality of breathing in and out to it becoming more refined as the mind becomes more willing to just follow the instructions, right? Breathing in long, one knows I'm breathing in long, breathing in short, one knows it's a more refined in-breath. Breathing out long, one knows it's a longer out-breath or grosser out-breath. Breathing out short or refined, one knows that. So we're just clearly aware of the breathing in, breathing out well enough to just discern whether it's a grosser or a more refined in or out breath. That's all. It's not about controlling the breath. You know, there's a lot of people get confused who've done yoga practices where there's a lot of, uh, in the yoga tradition, you know, a lot of pranayama, a lot of breathing practices where you are specifically controlling the breath. But we're not controlling the breath. We're observing nature. It's just that we happen to be using the breathing as a little subset of nature. Breathing in and breathing out is just an aspect of nature. And so we're learning to keep some ordinary aspect of nature in mind with enough integrity, with enough loyalty, with enough relaxed persistence that the mind drops its addiction to the diversity of experience. It just lets that all fall into the background. It's a huge letting go. It's a huge renunciation. I'll read something from uh, Ajahn Cha, this uh, famous Thai master, just because it's, it's just, you know, when we really taste that simplicity, that seclusion, it really stands out. He writes in a chapter, and I have this uh, wonderful little chapter in our resources. There's a lot of good stuff in the resources if you haven't checked it out yet. And that's in the emails that I sent out to the group. If the mind is at ease, if it's at peace, you will naturally be aware. As you keep doing it, the breath diminishes, becomes softer. The body becomes pliable. The mind becomes pliable. It's a natural process. Sitting is comfortable. You're not dull. You don't nod. You're not sleepy. The mind has a natural fluency about whatever it does. It is still, it is at peace. And then when you leave the samadhi, you say to yourself, wow, what was that? You recall the peace that you've just experienced and you never forget it. Because this is our first taste, I mean, when it happens, or often one of our first tastes of what we'd say in Buddhism, a non-sensual pleasure or an unworldly pleasure because it's not about what's there. It's not about the sense experience. You might say, oh, you know, it's about the sense experience. I was doing mindfulness of breathing, just like I might go for a bike ride or I might take a swim. But in this case, I was doing mindfulness of breathing. That was my central activity, and I got that experience. But the pleasure of seclusion is really the absence of distraction. That's what we're feeling. We're feeling what the mind isn't doing. 
The mind isn't getting pushed around by its liking and disliking. Following this thought, because it thinks it can get rid of a not liking, or following this other train of thought, thinking it might get what it's what it likes. That's worldly activity. So when we're with the breath, in a sense, we have this desire to be with the breath, right? But we're really limiting sensuality, right, in a powerful way. We're basically saying, honey, every, let's train ourselves so everything's off limits except the intimacy with this breathing process, and let's see what comes from that. And even as we start to get some momentum, and I think I mentioned this last week, we start to feel the pleasure of that seclusion. So being with the breath, that like more subtle current of breathing in and out, it's really hard to distinguish like what we're being aware of. It's hard to distinguish the current of breathing in and breathing out from the pleasure of that continuity of mindful awareness. They're so entwined, the pleasure of the simplicity of the mind with the object that's being known. We can't say, oh, this is that and this is this other thing. All we know is there's an unworldly pleasure showing up and the mind is naturally very interested in it. But we have to be careful in those moments not to believe that we need to think. We will think about it but we don't want to believe we need to think about what's happening in my practice. We just want to keep doing what we're doing. When we get some samadhi, the point at that moment is to keep doing what you're doing, not to think, I'm getting some samadhi. (laughs) But we will think, I'm getting some samadhi. That just happens. So we need to be forgiving. But we want to hear that instruction. Just keep doing what we're doing. What are we doing? We're tracking the breath. And as it gets more subtle, we're tracking the subtle breath in and out. And at some point, when there feels like there's some real clarity about this experience of seclusion, the simplicity of the mind feels like this, then just start realize, like whatever it is in the background, the other sensations of the body, just let them come into the foreground. Oh yeah, training myself, breathing in, experiencing the whole body. Breathing out, experiencing the whole body. And remember, if it's helpful every once in a while, you can just drop in the actual phrases from the Buddha. And this is a perfect time before we break into small groups to remind you, thank you, Raha, for catching this typo. I don't know how mindful everyone else was, myself included, but I think that there was a little typo, you know, because the way it is is uh, the first instruction is, you know, breathing in long, one knows I'm breathing in long, breathing in short, one knows I'm breathing in short, breathing out long, one knows I'm breathing out long, and I think this is where the typo was, breathing out short, it should say, one knows I'm breathing out short, but I think it says breathing in short. Anyway, it's obvious if you look carefully, and this is just a little example of delusion, how the mind just will put in the right thing, and we don't really see clearly. So we're not good editors. <laughs> so just to review before we break into small groups, these little powerful 20-minute interactions we have, this is a little sacred space we hold in confidentiality. Whatever is said there, we just leave there. Each person gets their two, two and a half minutes. 
It's often nice for someone to be a timer. It's good to introduce yourself, say your name. People on Zoom can say where you're from, share your pronouns if you'd like. And then somebody volunteer to be first. And generally we go in clockwise direction. Each person gets their two and a half minutes. Everyone else, you're just in that embodied listening. You're just in your body listening. You don't have to nod. You don't have to give any kind of feedback. You just give that person the space, that safe space to share whatever they want to share. And if they pause, that's okay. You just hold the silence while they still have their time. It's always okay to pass. After you go around the group, then check in with the person who passed. They may want to speak after everyone else has spoken, or they may not, and that will be fine. People on Zoom, obviously, you can't go in clockwise direction. So somebody who the person who goes, then just call on somebody when you're done after your two and a half minutes. Right? And then whatever time is left at the end, just for open discussion. That's the time if you want to ask clarifying questions you didn't understand, something someone said, then you can, you can check in with them so that you really want to hear them. And so uh, just your own experience with using the exclusive object, what have you learned about effort, sometimes being too tight, too much, sometimes being too loose, too little. Um, how about that transition between the exclusive attention to the breath and what you learned in that, like opening up to the totality of the body. Was that easy? Was it hard? What did you notice? And then also the fourth instruction about sensing that bodily calm and well-being and sensing how it can grow and start to touch, be felt everywhere, spreading, suffusing throughout the body when it's strong. What have you learned about that? What doubts have come up in any of these places? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.